I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, Frederick Douglass, Robert Smalls, and Filipino sailors. The little-known history of the American Mariner. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for a stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey, Todd, how are you today? I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I did, I did. I'm doing very well, thank you. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and also I hope you had a happy birthday and ate and drank a lot of wine. Uh, I Um, did. I had a wonderful birthday, and I want to shout out to all our listeners all around the world for their many wishes um, for my birthday and my health. Um, I was extremely moved um, by so many people wishing me happy birthday, and I want to thank everyone generally, and it's I'll eventually get back to doing it individually, but there seems to be a lot of people. So, yeah, thank you very much, everybody. So if you can talk... Uh over your hangover. Um, (laughs) uh, Could you tell us uh, what today's episode is about? Yeah, today's episode is titled The American Mariner. And I got to thinking quite a while ago about asking the question of who is the American Mariner? Um, It's an important question because for about 300 years, Um, the American Mariner was a very special human being um, in all of uh, the character of America. Um, Today, we're not that much affected by the Mariners themselves. Um, We are affected by everything they bring into the country on container ships and and can, um, you know, all sorts of different kinds of vessels and the vessels that are working all the ports and rivers and and everything that goes into with into you know what the marine systems of America are all about, but there's a very definite um, there's a very definite set of characteristics that are come from the American Mariner, and a lot of us think it comes that they're sort of you know New England white square jawed, and that can't be further from the truth. Um, the American Mariner background is, is multiracial, multireligious. Uh, it's like the Republic itself. Lots of different people doing lots of different things. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Today I want to talk about the American Mariner. Um, the reputation and influence of the American Mariner rests largely today in poetry, literature, film. Um, we see racing boat captains, but do really any of us, unless we follow the sport of the America's Cup or some of the other, really know who these people are? Um, they're not widely recognized as they have been in the past. But the cachet of the sailor remains prevalent in our culture, 
in our marinas, our ports, and our cities. You know, pirates, rogue captains, smugglers, riverboat races, naval dominance, merchant marines, celebrity sailors, as I mentioned, recreational boaters plying all our waterways, all sorts of commercial vessels moving in and out of our country at a pace and frequency never experienced before in the history of maritime shipping. The contribution of the American mariner to the economy and the lore of this country is profound. Running from about the 17th century to the 20th century was a dominant character in the influence of America. We don't see it so much today, but there is profound influences from that, that period. And it started basically in 1812. And I'm going to go back a little bit um, to help you understand the sort of aspects of the American Mariner, which we have to go back to sort of the English sailor at that point, because that's where we, we came from in this thing. But in 1812, Captain David Porter raised a banner on the USS Essex, proclaiming a free trade and sailors' rights. This was a political slogan that basically explained the War of 1812. Free trade demanded protection of American commerce, while sailors' rights insisted that the British end the impressment of seamen from American ships. Now, I don't know if a lot of people who know this, I'm sure there are quite a few people who know this already, but the English needed bodies, they needed people, they would come by and they would stop an American merchant marine and they would impress. In other words, they would take the sailors off of those ships and put them on their own ships, mostly naval war vessels. And this, this was the, the whole source of irritation in the War of 1812. Up until that point, there was some naval activity after the, during and after the Revolutionary War. But, you know, there was a sort of standoff. It was like, uh, the attitude was like two brothers, you know, sort of being separated. And, you know, the Constitution, the USS Constitution, it actually uh, made a great impression on the British fleet. Um, who was, in a sense, suffering from the years and years and years of blockades um, against the French Napoleon Bonaparte. Whereas the Americans were building fresh ships, they had fresh lumber, oak, all the rest. This, they were building stout vessels that could, could handle any British cannonball that would come at it. And the economy of the colonies at the time was growing. However, it's important to note that a lot of the British emphasis and focus wasn't on the colonies. It was actually on the West Indies because of sugar. There is and was a certain um, triangle of trade. The British would take, and the Americans would participate in this, they would take... um, goods that were made, iron goods, technical goods, um, uh, cloth, cotton, cloth, um, various other sort of tools and whatever. They would take that from England where it was made or Europe where it was made. They would go to Africa. They would trade some of that, um, load up their ship with slaves, 
sail across to the West Indies, sell the slaves, all right, and some of the tools and come back to the United States or go back to England from that point. So there was this whole triangle of trade which runs essentially um, uh, with the current and the wind, okay? It's a sort of circular motion around what they call the middle passage of the Atlantic. And slavery is a really important thing here because Captain David Porter declaring free trade and sailors' rights was an important extension of the sailor and the sailor's rights, which existed well into the 20th century. And one of the key things about that is Jim Crow was not on ships per se. And I'll, I'm going to get into some detail with it because Jim Crow actually existed in the U.S. Navy, but not in the merchant marines, which is really central to what the theme about the American Mariner is. Because we often think the American Mariner as this white, square-jawed, New England sailing captain, um, you know, who who stands in the middle of the winter and you know he's brave and he's stout and he's you know he's got endurance and he's he's got morality on his side and all the rest of this stuff and that is true to an extent but the american mariner was really a a republic of multiculturalism now, I know some of you are going to go, oh, wait, no, I don't want to get into this. I don't want to think about this. But I think it's important to note that there's so many heroes, so many famous people of non-white origin that made the American Mariner who the American Mariner is today. And this multicultural bias that I'm promoting at the moment is very, very important to understanding how America is and how sailing and shipping and trade exists. So after Captain David Porter raised his banner on the Essex proclaiming free trade and sailors' rights, there was a, na there was a thing about sailors that they were special. They were extremely special. And they had a, a, a different kind of um, disposition. They were respected, regardless of their color. They were sailors. Done. That was it. Where their origins, regardless, done. They had respect. And in fact, there's a great story about Frederick Douglass wearing a sailor's outfit with a, a kerchief tied in a specific knot representative of sailors. And getting on a train in Virginia, or in Maryland, I'm sorry, and um, no one ever questioned him whether he was a free man or a slave. He got, And this is when slavery was running, you know, was very strong, and there were people looking for um, runaway slaves, and this, this business was just off the charts. And But because he was dressed as a sailor and spoke like a sailor, he was able to get on a train take that train out of Baltimore and get himself to New York City. And then from New York City, he ended up in Nantucket. And that's just an indication of the way people perceived and respected 
sailors. Now, one of the first sailors, really, um, was a guy named James Fortin. He was an African-American privateer. And as a 15-year-old boy, um, he was on a privateer called the Royal Lewis. And it was uh, commanded by Stephen Decatur. It was commanded by Stephen Decatur. He was born free in Philadelphia and had already served as a drummer in the Continental Army. So the Royal Lewis had a crew of 200. 20 of them were African Americans. And during their first cruise as a privateer, she captured a British Navy brig. On the second cruise, she met a heavily armed British frigate. And the two others, they were forced to surrender. He had spent some time in a prison ship. And he expected to be sold into slavery in the West Indies. As this is what the British did. If they captured a black prisoner during the Revolutionary War, they just sold him to, into slavery. Whether he was free or not didn't make any difference. But he ended up befriending the captain's son on this British uh, brig. And his father, instead of selling him, sent him to England. And he, Fortin, refused to be a traitor to his country, and he ended up in a prison ship in Jersey. Um, And this, he asked, he had a letter and said, you know, please don't, you know, this is, these prison ships were horrible, okay? Um, So he spent some time in this prison ship. Now, what happened after that was that once he got out, he escaped by hiding in the baggage of an officer being exchanged for a British prisoner. And he was allowed um, to take the space of a younger white boy. And he helped carry the chest off the jersey, and he was set free in exchange for the prisoners. He walked walked home from New York to Philadelphia, where he eventually became a successful businessman and the founder of the abolitionist movement. He was a sailmaker in Philadelphia, about where you, um, in Penn's Landing, if, any, if you know Philadelphia, he had a shop down there and became one of the, the richest, uh, most successful businessmen. Now, this brings to light the shipbuilding and building skills and the carpenter skills of the black boat builder. So we have to kick back and go back to about 1632. And this is important to understanding the character of the American Mariner. This is long before America became America in the Revolutionary War in 1776. And as I mentioned before in my podcast called The Bermuda Sloop, we have to look at what was happening in Bermuda. Now, Bermuda is ideally placed for... Ships coming out of Cuba and the east of the Caribbean, uh, Colombia, Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Panama, and the Spanish were shipping tons and tons of gold, um, and they had to make the path up the Gulf of Mexico, up the Gulf Stream, and then they basically would head east Um, passing somewhat close to Bermuda and finally getting out um, and and going back to Spain. 
Now, this, as I said before, this trade, this circular motion of, of wind and current, um, took the Spanish galleons close to the Bermuda Islands. And in this, the English that were there, and a lot of blacks that had come from uh, Spain and had come from the West Indies, many of them free. Um, the important note here is that the Spanish um, never looked at color um, and racial identity in slaves. Um, you could be white, you could be black, you could be purple. They didn't care. Slavery was their thing. Slavery was slaves. Done. Finished. Okay. It wasn't racially oriented, much like the Portuguese was racially oriented. The English were racially oriented and the Americans were racially oriented. If you were a white person or white person that or a light skinned person, um, you would, and, and didn't have quote unquote Negro features, um, you could pass very easily, and they would never say anything. But with the Spanish, they didn't care. You know, if, once you were designated slave, you were slave. But in any case, there was a lot, there was a way to get out of being a Spanish slave, and it had to do with money. It had to do with being allowed to go, um, mostly uh, through effort of the person who was the slave. But there was uh, a traditional way of, of escaping or buying your way out of slavery. It was more of an economic issue rather than a social and religious issue, whereas the English and the, um, the English and the Americans viewed slavery as sort of, uh, not sort of, it viewed slavery as, as endemic, this was going to be the rest of your life. There was no, there was no out. That was their view. There was no out. So once you were a slave, you were a slave for life. And their idea was is that you would be much better off because you would learn to be a Christian and you know, then your life would be would would be saved and there would be salvation. But if they sent you back to Africa, then that would be terrible because you wouldn't have Christ and you would die and blah 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 blah. But this rationalization was a rationalization that white people had. And to a certain extent, it kind of still exists in a weird way. But I digress on that. So one of the stories is that the Bermuda Sloop Building, they had some beautiful cedar on Bermuda, and there's still, you can find it um, if you wander around the island. And there are some very interesting things going on there. The... Um, the white Bermudans, the English, were quite um, ready to go and privateer. And they would leave all the time. And they would leave their women along with these black boat builders. And they started to get kind of nervous about this. And it became such an important thing that they started to take the black boat builders with them. And they became privateers. But the thing is, is that everybody was treated based on their skill level. They were equals. They get equal pay based on your skill level. So there was no, as we would call it, Jim Crow. Okay, they didn't, the, the, 
British didn't look down on somebody of color if he was a good seaman. He just fulfilled that role. Now, when this happened, the Bermudan built builders became very strong. They, as a collective, um, they built some amazing schooners. And in fact, they built over a thousand vessels, um, schooners and sloops um, of some weight um, and cannon weight and, and, and like almost 300, like 300 ton vessels and stuff of this nature. And they built these things um, and they supplied them to the Americans um, in, for the Revolutionary War. Now, many of these Bermudans moved to eastern Virginia and Maryland. And this is very important because Fells Point in Baltimore became key to boat building in the United States. And the reason it became key is for two things. First of all, the access to lumber, oak trees, cedar, um, and a variety of other uh, trees that they could build boats with because they were obviously all wooden, and also uh, access to the mills where they produced um, cotton uh, cloth, which was perfect for sails. And so you had these two major elements to creating a sailboat right there in, in the Baltimore area, and Fells Point in particular. And there were a number of black-owned um, shipyards, and they built thousands of ships. Matter of fact, um, statistically, I think there was like 63 naval ships, mostly built in the um, in New England, and like the Constitution, and there was over 1,500 sloops, schooners, and brigs that were built out of Baltimore. So you had this great industry taking place on Fells Point, building ships. And the skilled labor of building these ships um, generally fell to black men. And some were slaves, some weren't. It's a very interesting story about Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass um, was born on the east side of Chesapeake Bay, um, around Miles River. it separates Maryland, Virginia, of course, and it's sort of on a point between Philadelphia, you know, it's on a point between Baltimore, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and a lot of boats came into the bay, went to Miles River, uh, the Choptank River, which borders Talbot County, um, and this Tuckahoe plantation was up about 12 miles outside of it. And this is where Douglas spent most of his early life. And Frederick Douglass um, was enamored with uh, ships and boats, and they, and they represented um, a kind of uh, a freedom. And this freedom um, kept going in his mind. Now, one of the interesting things was is that he was literally sent... Um, to Baltimore to live with another man. Uh, as a, He was a slave, young slave in his teenage days. And um, this man um, sent him to a shipyard, and he worked in a shipyard. He was a caulker. And a caulker is a person who puts the, the oakum and, and cotton 
between the planks of a ship. Um, it's not a, it's a tedious job, but it's not really an exceptionally hard job, but it is a somewhat skilled job. In Baltimore, there was actually, and there's, there's a, the house is still there, where they had the Caulkers Union. It was a society of black Caulkers because that was a big job. And they had banded together. And in this society, with, in this small house with a dirt floor in Baltimore, it's still it's a historical site right now, um, they taught the Caulkers how to read and how to write. And this is where Douglas first learned how to read and write. And he obviously took it up very, very well. And he continued to work in the shipyard. He continued to be around ships. He would see, this was at Fells Point. He would see that he would be working on the ship's building. He would see the sailors come in. He would see these black sailors come in on these other ships. Because you have to understand, sailing these ships took a lot of people. I mean, a naval vessel to fight both sides and to sail it took anywhere, depending on its size and tonnage and guns, took three to 400 men on a boat. Now, there isn't, you know, that's a lot of people. And a lot of these people, in fact, the, the Revolutionary War ships, the Continental Congress said only 10% of the sailors on any naval vessel would be black. But it actually ended up to be closer or over 20%. And there was a lot of interesting, um, you know, fighting like with James Fortan and being, being a, a fighter and, and being able to, to handle the ships and sail the ships. And, but they were limited in rank, and this would stay for a long time. Um, but people at that point, very few people were that aggressive in terms of pushing to get higher rank. Um, it just wasn't in the nature of the culture and the society at the time. But Frederick Douglass, in his book called The Narrative of Frederick Douglass, um, kept going and kept pushing. He eventually actually got sent back home to his original plantation. And he um, was sent to a guy who, because he tried to escape, which he was caught, and he was sent back to a guy called, who had a nickname of calling the Buster. And he spent uh, two and a half, three years there. And this guy whipped him um, just as he, as he writes, he said his body and his spirit were completely broken. And this was not an uncommon thing at this point. And this was in, you know, Chesapeake and in, in eastern Chesapeake. And um, eventually he was sent back to Baltimore. And when he was back in Baltimore, he had decided at this point he was going to escape for good. And this is when he and a friend, they, they, he got dressed in a, a sailor's uniform because a sailor was able to walk down the street and do anything he wanted to do. He was... Um, he was considered an elevated human being, not necessarily in class or caste, but a sailor was a very unique person. And this right that a sailor had, you know, with his scarf and his, his uniform that he would wear, this was an indication of, of respect and of pride. And it didn't matter who you were, color or origin. 
This is just the way it was. And why was that? Well, it was that way because sailors brought so much income and trade. In fact, when Frederick Douglass, with the help of a friend who carried his suitcases, by the way, they got on a train. No one ever talked to him. They left. They went up to New York City and went from New York City, where he actually married somebody, a woman that he was madly in love with, that he had met at Fells Point. They got married, and then they moved, um, took a train and a boat, steamship, actually, up to uh, Nantucket. And in Nantucket, he gave his first abolitionist um, speech, which made him famous. And it's very important because Nantucket, the Nantucket captain, irony-wise here, the Nantucket captain is sort of what we see as the white, sailing, whaling captain of the ages. This is, this is what we see. This is the contrast of sailor, you see? And this is, this is sort of an interesting thing because Moby Dick, Melville's great tome, is 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 got the captain in it who is struggling and the person who is narrating it is Ishmael. He's a Muslim. And it just gives you an indication of of the nature of acceptance, the nature of of the American mariner as this sort of multicultural, uh multi religious um being. Because on a ship, on the deck of a ship and sailing a ship is a different world. And that world was embodied in law and respected throughout the culture. Even though the culture was in this darkness of slavery and bigotry and prejudice and caste and 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 classism, and it's all of this stuff is going on on land, but on sea, it was not this way. Okay? You had a hierarchy of the captain and many captains were white but underneath that white captain quote-unquote was a huge number of of people men that were completely different different in culture different in language different in religion but they were all treated equally and based on their treated with based on their skill and based on their experience and their ability to do their job as a sailor and you needed a lot of people to sail these ships because of the sails. You need a lot of people, a couple of hundred people. Even for a small schooner, you would need 40 or 50 people to, to sail these things. It was, a, it was a big job, especially long distance, which most of these sailors were doing exactly this. They were sailing to Europe. They were sailing to the Caribbean. They were sailing around to San Francisco. As we move forward in American history, the central part of the character of the American mariner has been pretty much solidified. We have a couple of elements already in there. The whole pirate aspect of the American mariner. Um, This came from pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp kind of guys, etc. And it began in this uh, swashbuckling way with the buccaneer 
It began with the privateer, um, who were basically, they were an extension of the military. Um, essentially, the British and the Spanish and the French all used buccaneers and privateers um, to wage war on each other because what was occurring in the West Indies as well as in Asia um, was a part of the Great War that was going on in Europe between the French, the Germans, Austrians, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and English. And if you look at the islands of the Caribbean, there's a Dutch island, there's a French island, there's an English island, there's a Bridget, you know, it goes, and there are American islands. And, and it, most people don't know, but the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, were originally Dutch islands. And they were bought by the United States after World War One to settle a debt. So we move on and... During this period between the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the War of 1812 is really the separation point. That is the, that is the flexing point for the American sailor to become his own. And it's important, as I said, that uh, after the uh, War of 1812, which the United States won, um, the things that the American sailor was about began to change dramatically. And they changed dramatically because of the introduction of steam. And many ships were now becoming steam-driven, quasi-steam-driven, quasi-sail. Okay, But your local boats, the little steamships, little tugboats were steamships. The New York Bays were filled with the little tugboats that were run on steam. And they had side paddles. So as the technology developed, the skills of the sailor also changed. They became more mechanics. They became more um, uh, boiler makers. Um, they, they became more skilled in these areas. But they also became less skilled in some areas because someone had to shovel the coal or throw the wood into the fire to boil the water. And so this was, this was an element of, of negativity in the American mariner's life, especially for people that weren't, uh, uh, weren't white or of color. And that leads us up into the Civil War. Now, this was a, the Civil War was a development of, quote-unquote, Ironsides, you know, ships made of iron, um, and a realization that essentially ships um, were essentially platforms for cannon. And that the whole aspect of sailing them was completely different. Because if you had steam and you had a side paddle, steam ship, you could load that thing up with cannon and you could just fire away. And you could, didn't need to worry about the currents. You didn't need to worry about the wind. The little bit maybe, but for the most part, you had the ability to go wherever you wanted to go. So these particular platforms became very, very important. And it leads us to something, or to someone, Robert Smalls, who is maybe one of the most important and um, least recognized uh, heroes 
of the Union. And Robert Smalls was a black man who uh, was a pilot down in Charleston. And he was a slave, and he worked on a side paddle as part of, of the crew. The Confederate captain at the time and his officers were of the opinion that black people couldn't do shit that they were, they were unable to do complicated things. This sort of attitude is still prevalent today. I mean, when I see people go like, oh man, he was black and he was a scientist, that's amazing. You know, that, that is a kind of, um, it's a kind of prejudice in a way. That's a kind of bigotry. Oh, I'm surprised he did so well, okay? They don't say this about, white people you know it's just i'm surprised he did this well you know it's about um the idea that we don't think this race has the ability to be thoughtful intellectual mechanical you name it any of those kinds of skills and this is a comfort to white people who think as we've found in our politics in the last four years that you know there's this sort of racial bias in everything that they do so the captains of this ship uh, believed that it was a 147-foot um, uh, side-wheel steamer, and um, Robert Smalls, who was illiterate at the time, um, was like the first mate. And the guys left, the captains left, because they slept on land, not on the boat. And Robert Smalls, um, unmoored the boat, drove up the river, the Charleston River, picked up his family, and all the rest of the people on the boat were black. They were slaves. And then he turned around and he went down the Charleston River. He went past Fort Sumter and risked his life. He could have been blown out of the water at Fort Sumter because it was, it was occupied by the Confederates. They kind of perceived, oh, yeah, that's a Confederate vessel going out, whatever. So they let it go. And he went to the first Union ship that he could find. And the Union ship uh, could have blown him out of the water, seeing that it was a Confederate vessel. But they had made a homemade uh, Union flag and were flying it. And he delivered, Robert Smalls delivered the vessel to the Union and became the Union hero. He eventually ended up meeting um, uh, Lincoln. He carried orders for Lincoln. Uh, he was highly respected. He learned to read and write. He became the first black captain of an army vessel. So there's your first black captain in the American naval, um, in the American Navy. He was the army, same difference, American Navy. Later, he became a five-time congressman from South Carolina, representing South Carolina in the Congress of the United States after the war. A remarkable human being, a remarkable man of, of bravery. Um, there are many other, other um, adventures that he had that required, you know, ridiculous amounts of bravery and cunning and thoughtfulness. And Robert Smalls is one of those amazing American heroes that um, really helped change the way people perceived um, slavery and the way that um, 
you know, he perceived himself as a man, um, just as an I just as a passing idea that he bought the house that he was a slave in in Charleston, which is a national monument today, and um, still allowed the people that um, were his uh, uh, owners, slave owners, um, to live in the house with him as an act of generosity after the Civil War. Um, I think that's just, that speaks volumes. It speaks volumes and to me is just really emotional and very, very moving. So there you have a sort of idea of what the American Mariner, the black American Mariner was like, uh, what they had to face is a lot of stuff, but still being on ships, they had, they had a little bit more freedom and uh, respect and pay than they normally would have on land. And that kind of pushes us up to, um, 1901, um, in which just as uh, uh, just to show the the breadth of what was going on in the navy, the navy was allowed to uh, enlist 500 Filipinos, and it was a part of a the Navy General Order Number 40, um, and the Filipinos were generally assigned to uh, steward duties um, after granting independence to the Philippine Islands in 1946, the recruitment was closed. But from 1901 to 1946, the Philippine, Filipino people became uh, very, very important in the functioning of the United States Navy. And because of the Spanish-American War, which you remember Teddy Roosevelt riding up in Cuba and winning the war all by himself, Um, one of the great topics or great sayings at the time was remember the Maine. The Maine was a a battleship and um, exploded while the whole thing and everybody was lost on it. And this was an attack by the Spanish at the time. And um, the Filipinos uh, became very much a part of the the war Um, and to fight against it. And they still remain today. I mean, you can go down to San Diego. Um, and I know that out at, uh, um, in Virginia as well, um, there's quite a lot of Filipino uh, Navy um, people. Um, it's a great tradition. And um, it's one of the great traditions. But what you have to understand is, is that the American Navy never let any of these people go beyond being a steward or even a cook. The same with blacks. The U.S. Navy was incredibly racist all the way through until like 1946 when Truman signed the order that there would be equality through all the ranks of the military services. But between 1901 and 1946, the Filipinos were a part of that. In fact, they they served in the uh, White House as stewards. They're very well known at that. And a lot of times what they'll say is some Filipinos, there's some great quotes about it, is that they're, um, it, was a, it was a great, they'd rather cook and clean, even though they're very pride, prideful that they don't cook and clean when they're at home. That's up to the, the women. But um, they they would happily do that because of the poverty in the Philippines 
this opportunity being in the Navy where they would send and they would send all their money back would be a great thing. And they would happily do it for that kind of sacrifice. Also, I should note that in the merchant marine business, which is not the Navy, uh, merchant marines are very different. Um, a lot of Filipinos are mates, um, engineers, etc., on Philippine uh, on uh, any any uh, merchant marine ship. Any any big ship you see, there's probably a Filipino guy on there. Um, there's Filipino captains, and you know it gets us back to you know not only were black people um, you know striving to get ahead. They were striving. They, they they were on ships. They were given equal pay. They were given equal respect. The American, um, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders of various nationalities, like Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Filipino, Southeast Asian, Asian, Indian, Polynesian, they all have a rich, rich legacy. All in in the United States Navy. So it's also important to note that the Navy after 1946 the merchant marine far before that really began to to allow women and people of different origins and colors to take more important positions uh in the vessels um you know one of the famous people is uh um connie marinero who was the first filipino american to become a rear admiral um, you had uh, another guy, uh, Gordon Paea Chong Hoon, who was the first Asian American um, to graduate from the Naval Academy, and he served in uh, World War II and was the first Asian American flag officer. You had uh, a variety of different origins uh, Hawaiian, uh, Robert uh, Gahune who was a commander of a guided missile destroyer. Um, all of these people, um, you know, and, and they're astronauts. There's women who were Japanese or first Asian American to operate like a uh, flexible mount turret mounted machine guns on aircraft in the Navy. There's all sorts of, of wonderful um, doctors and 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 soldiers and naval people and the navy took a long time to and it still is by the way is there is a sect of the navy that is still highly prejudiced and um you know these 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 people just really don't get it you know when the battleship main exploded and sank um in havana harbor the blast killed 266 men, including um, including Japanese and Chinese extraction. It was a catalyst for the entire war. So you have a lot of, of, of people. The first Filipino, uh, Cruz Trinidad, um, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor for rescuing two men after a boiler exploded on board the ship San Diego on January 21st, 1915. Um, you know, there's a lot of bravery from a lot of people in a lot of different countries that came from a lot of different countries. The American Mariner is, is, is really a part 
of of the American culture. It's a republic of multiculturalism. Whether people like it or not, this is this is the case. And, you know, we go back to the U.S. Navy, you know, during the War of 1812, 15 to 20% of the Navy was black. And these sailors manned guns. They fought. I mean, James Madison asked... Um, if his black sailors would run at the approach of the British and the commander, uh, the Commodore Joshua Barney said in the battle of Bladensburg said, no, sir, they don't, they don't know how to run. They will die by their guns first. And these people, these wonderful human beings, these black men and women that served in the Navy that fought in the civil war that fought in world war one, and fought everywhere in all the theaters and all the wars, okay, were never given their total due until really the 2000s. And it was a slow process, a very, very slow process. And even today, you know, there's a lot of stupidity around this idea. In Chicago, for example, today they have couple of different uh, they got black chicago sailors group they got the jackson park yacht club um universal sailing or usc club in chicago um and they were they were founded by african-american sailors um uh, the universal sailing club is in chesapeake they were founded by african-american sailors because um they they weren't allowed to get fuel at certain places because of their color the Seafarers Yacht Club has a rich history as being one of the oldest black yacht clubs in the United States. And that was founded in 1959 when, as I said, many of the Chesapeake Bay marinas would not let black boaters gas up at their piers. And the yacht clubs were closed to black captains. And a group of, you know, a group of working class black men got together and uh, created the Seafarers Yacht Club. So these things exist today. I mean, that's like 1959. Um, they exist today in, in much broader strokes. But the one thing about the American Mariner, and I think you could agree, is that the American Mariner is a very wonderful and powerful uh, character. And, you know, even going back to uh, the movie like, you know, uh, Sand Pebbles with uh, Steve McQueen, you know, that's still a little bit of a racist movie when you look at it, um, because there were a lot of Filipino and Chinese guys on these steamships that ran up the these little uh, cruise, cruisers that ran up the Yangtze River um, during this period. And um, that whole story is essentially based on a Filipino um, engineer. And, um, but they changed it so that Steve McQueen could star in it, which I'm sure nobody cares about. But I think it's, it's just interesting that film and TV um, and books have all portrayed, you know, American Mariners as being white. And this is a this is a kind of ingrained bigotry that really has run through the US Navy, although it's changing. I mean, there's now um, 
um, women that are fighter pilots, and now there are black women that are fire, fighter pilots. There are women of color that are astronauts. There are women of color that are now admirals. Um, yet still there is a segment of the Navy's upper echelon that still holds these racist beliefs. Different in the Army. Army's been far more integrated over the past Marine Corps, not so much, um, but really the Navy. Um, Air Force has been very integrated. Um, and it's very interesting because we always think of the pilot as being white. Well, in fact, there's a lot of black pilots, Asian pilots, Pacific Island pilots. So these things are changing. But the American Mariner's view, or the way we see the American Mariner, goes back to opportunity the american um americans of different color um, of different creeds uh, gravitated towards being on a ship there's a famous uh, quote in the 1940s about uh, black men joining the merchant marines and they joined the merchant marines because they believed there was no jim crow in the merchant marines and this made um the opportunity open up for them. And there's a very famous um, black captain that not enough can be said about this guy. And his name is uh, Captain Molzak. And he was an African-American uh, merchant marine. He, uh, he was in command of an integrated crew during World War II. Um, he was originally from Union Island, which is in St. Vincent. It's beautiful island, I might add, in the British West Indies. He, he went to school. Um, he became an American citizen in 1918. And uh, he continued his training at the shipping board in New York, which, by the way, is a very important uh, institution because uh, they accepted both black, white, and any other color. They were just shipping their merchant marines. Always, always merchant marines have been, um, to a certain degree, uh, colorblind but there was still a lot of racial prejudice and he was denied the right to command a ship for a long time and finally he got uh, and then he got the command of a ship with an all-black crew and he refused declaring that under no circumstance will I command a Jim Crow vessel and 22 years had passed before he would again receive a, a command of a naval ship but during World War II his demand for an integrated crew was finally met, and he was put in command of the SS Booker T. Washington. You have to understand, a lot of these merchant marine ships were just running supplies from the United States to Europe at the time. Um, he made 22 round-trip voyages in five years and carried over 18,000 troops to Europe and Pacific. And it was everything that he stood for, as he says. He says, everything I ever was, stood for, dreamed of, came to focus on the day that uh, Booker T. Washington was christened. And it was a concrete evidence of the ships and his movement up. And the crew became even, even you know, more. The profiles of the Merchant Marine crew are, are really amazing. You know, um, guys that were electricians, for example, um, they, they got on ships and this... They were happy that there wasn't the Jim Crow. They didn't have to deal with that crap. And 
they a lot of them came on and they were they they got more training um you know one young man who was 16 years old from indiana said um he's just an ordinary seaman but i don't expect to stay for long which i don't expect to stay for long that i want to go to officer school and the proposed seaman bill of rights provides that the seaman bill of rights is a very very special and interesting thing which i'll take up in a later uh podcast because it's extremely complicated and it really deserves a lot of time. But uh, Captain uh, Hugh Molzak of the SS Booker T. Washington was um, just like Booker T. Washington. He was he was a black man that uh, stood um, heads and, 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 and shoulders above anybody else at the time. And a lot of black men who had a hard time trying to make a living... Um, this the merchant marine was a place you could go you could make a decent living and be treated decently and this is this evolved very quickly after world war ii and i should note that ship construction also contributed to a vast um amount of of people becoming uh more ingrained into the american mariners uh life and point of view um liberty ships um you know, permitted the building of liberty ships, uh, permitted African Americans into like the mainstream industrial jobs for the first time. And black women significantly contributed to the construction effort. Um, at Kaiser Richmond, a Cal, uh, Kaiser Richmond, which is a California shipyard, a thousand women were among the 6,000 African American workers. And the women performed the same tasks as men. And this was, you know, this was in World War II, and the war made people see things a little bit differently. Um, and it's always been the case. So I've listed a lot of characters and people that have participated in being um, the American Mariner. And I think what's most important is that the American Mariner is a multicultural, multi-race uh, character and his effect or her effect as well um, on the Americans on American society was extremely profound um, and in the future I'm going to get into to more of these sort of historical stories and how they link up to the way uh, ships were built um, the sailing today um, uh, all of these uh, items are, are completely integrated and they really show what the American character is. And the American character is profoundly influenced by the American Mariner's character. And the American Mariner's character is a multicultural, um, is, is one of pride, of, of equality, of equal pay, of skill, and of fortitude. And the Amer there's, there's nothing like the American sailor around the world. They're highly respected. They still are very highly respected. And it has nothing to do with firepower and the Navy and stuff like that. We're highly respected as sailors themselves. That was a really fascinating story. I like uh, some of the history behind the the depth of the 
kinds of people that make up mariners and sailors. And I like that concept of when you're on a ship or you're a sailor, people don't really care about the color of your skin and your background. They care about your ability and, and, and what you do on the ship. Like that's that and how you contribute. And that's, that's the most American thing I can think of. Yeah, it was it. If you think of it this way, I mean, even though America is a very, you know, racist country still is um and it was for many years with slavery and and then jim crow and all the rest ships always were separate um the navy did their best to be jim crow uh but that didn't happen until you know they didn't really start being super jim crow and until like the 1920s um, and that was the Navy. That was not the Merchant Marines, which is a completely separate and larger group of sailors. Yeah, and I and I have had you know I have a lot of friends and and relatives that are that are in the Navy or that are sailors, and they come from a multitude of backgrounds. So um, yeah, our our armed forces are definitely a very diverse uh, population and not monolithic. Oh yeah, and I didn't even I didn't even get into talking about, and I will um, in some further podcasts of you know Navy fighter pilots. Now there's a number of women that are Navy fire pilots, and and that's a kind of new thing. But there's also a number of uh, uh, black women fighter pilots. There's also a um, at the chief of staff level for the Navy. There is a admiral there that's a uh, that is a woman. Um, and she's black. And so there's also black men involved. So things have changed, uh, quite a bit and people are being promoted based on merit. And this is, uh, this is a good thing. It's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Um, next week I was, uh, I was, um, texting back and forth to some, some friends of mine. And they're having some trouble on their new boat. And they're actually, they had planned on, they sold everything, they sold their house, they, they you know, they moved on to the boat and uh, bought it, new boat, etc. And they started living on the boat um, as, as a kind of a permanent situation. And they've kind of reached the end of their rope. Um, a lot of things didn't happen for them. Um, I still think they can. And I'm speaking directly to them right now that uh, um, I think it's time for a change. And I'm going to talk about the mindset of cruisers and the mindset of people from land and how you go from the land mindset to the cruising mindset. And if you imagine a Venn diagram, which is two circles that intersect about 10 degrees, that whole middle part is where we all have problems, and um, I'm going to do. I'm going to discuss this about how one goes from being a land person and stepping on a boat and becoming a cruiser, and the opposite: how being a cruiser and stepping into, you know, back onto land and not being on boats has a as an effect. So I, I think it's worthwhile. We I addressed this. Um, Earlier in the podcast, um, Why Haven't You Left? Um, talked a little bit about it in um, Tommy Twang. But uh, I think I'm going to address it uh, directly. Thank you for tuning in. 
If you like this episode, be sure to leave us a review. You can find past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amano Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>